Good morning, Tri-Village. Merry Christmas. Melissa, thanks for all that. I, uh, I wanted to stay seated and just let you preach because uh, that was awesome. Thanks for all of that. Well, my name's Phil Shields. Uh, if I've never met you before, I would love to meet you afterwards. I'm one of the teaching pastors here at Wheaton Bible Church. And I get the extreme privilege to work with Melissa every week and uh, just thinking through groups and how to support you. And so if you're not in a group here at Tri-Village, I'm going to tell you that you need to write down your New Year's resolution right now. And that is that you're going to get into a group uh, starting in 2022, and you can talk with Melissa about that, and she will help you with it. If this is your first time here, welcome. I'm not the normal guy uh, that is here. I'm the clean-shaven guy. The other guy has a long beard and usually has food stuck in it, okay? So uh, Pastor Eric is over at our West Chicago campus this morning, um, so be praying for him. Well, it is really fun to be with you during this Advent season, and I hope that your Christmas season has been really good so far, and that as we move closer to uh, this Friday night when you gather, and as we move closer to Christmas, that you will take time to just pause in the midst of all the hurry, and to just take some rest and to look back on your year and see what God has done, what God is wanting to do in your life. As a church family, we have been looking at uh, the, um, really all these titles that are found in Isaiah chapter 9. And so I want to encourage you to get out your copy of the scriptures, turn it on on your phone, whatever it is, and go to Isaiah chapter 9. In the previous weeks, uh, you have looked at the title of Wonderful Counselor, and you've looked at Mighty God. And as you've looked at those, uh, I know Pastor Eric has gone deep into those, and uh, Pastor Bill was here, uh, but this morning, we're going to be looking at the title of Everlasting Father and what that means. And so I want to ask you to stand with me. Uh, we stand out of reverence for God's Word because we believe that this Word can transform lives. And we want to ask that it would do that this morning. So starting in verse 1 of chapter 9. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. I want to just pause there for a second. For those of us that aren't Jewish, this is now a... Uh, a prophetic statement that is coming out that is including us as Gentiles uh, in this uh, prophecy that is to come. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation, increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. 
Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born, to us, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Father, I pray that as we gather here that you would open our minds. I pray, Lord, that uh, we would hear your word, that we would be reminded of your love and your grace. I pray that the words that come from my mouth would be from you. I ask that I wouldn't be a distraction for this. And that all of us in here, including myself, would take your word and apply it, but that we would uh, allow room for you to transform us. And it's your name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, as we walk through this uh, title of Everlasting Father this morning, I want to give you something to cling to, okay? And it's uh, kind of the main principle as we look at this. I want you to kind of see this and, and remember this as you go through your day and your week, and it's this. It's that the peace and contentment that your life craves can be found in the presence of the Everlasting Father. The peace and contentment. Because I would imagine that every one of us that is here this morning is looking for that. That's what we want in our life. Let me give you a little bit of context real quickly. Um, if you've missed the past couple weeks, when we read from Isaiah chapter 9, what we are seeing is that this is during a time that there was uh, tremendous turmoil that uh, there was some awful things happening. If you look back in your text, you're going to see that in, verse, uh, in the first five verses of the, of the chapter, you're going to see words like this. You're going to see words gloom, distress, darkness, burden, oppressor, and then even this phrase, rolled in blood. Now, I don't know about you, but I have never seen a Christmas ornament with any of those words on it. Nothing. You don't see Christmas. Uh, we don't sing songs that have all these terms of, you know, we celebrate distress. We don't do that. And yet, Advent, the birth of our Savior, actually has to do with all of those words. Even though we don't associate those words with Christmas, they, Christmas has everything to do with it because Christmas is about this time where our Savior came and he impacts all of those feelings and experiences that we read there. And for some of us here this morning, those words are the very things that we're experiencing right now. So Isaiah writes this during a time when there was a king, King Ahaz, um, that was ruling. And I believe it was in the first week of this series, Pastor Eric uh, told you a little bit of background, but I want you to see this verse. In 2 Kings 16.2, we end up re reading this. Ahaz was 20 years old when he became 
king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 16 years. Unlike David, his father, he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord, his God. See, that one verse gives the context for Isaiah 9, that what the king did is he led an entire nation of people into gloom, into darkness, into distress, because he decided to rebel against God, and he led his entire nation along that path. And so then what we find is that the, the God who rescued his people out of Egypt, who continually cared for him, Isaiah is now prophesying what, the, what that God is going to do. What's fascinating is that the relationship between God and his people back then, that even though they were rebellious and, and going uh, in, in the ways of the culture, what we find is that that is repeating itself today. You and I are in a culture where we have this struggle, where we want to follow the path of what we see happening in the world around us. And yet God in his graciousness gives us another day, another breath in our lungs so that we can experience him and so that we can understand what he is about. And so Isaiah 9 is not just a prophecy, it's actually a birth announcement. It's an announcement that there is a light coming to a dark world. That there is someone who came to bring light to those dark circumstances that are invading your life today. And his name is Jesus. When I was born, uh, my parents gave me my names. And I have no issue with my first name. I actually like my first name, but I was born during a time that my dad was in seminary. What that meant was that he was studying the scriptures and he was moving forward to become a pastor and, and he was falling in love with the word of God and due to his love for the word of God, it influenced things in his life, including the naming of his first and favorite son. Like I said, I like my name, but it's the middle name that he butchered. See, he, he named his son after two disciples, and he prayed that I would grow to become like a disciple of Jesus. And so he named it, but he butchered it. My middle name is Bartholomew, and I hate it. But here's the thing, I, it, I mean, it, it frustrated me so much that even when I went to get my marriage license with my wife, I didn't even know how to spell my middle name. So I had to run out to the car and get a Bible and run back in to get the marriage license. In fact, when I was in sixth grade, I ended up changing something on this report because I didn't want anybody to know my name. And so when my parents came in to kind of be there in the room and to see what's taking place, they went and they couldn't find my desk because my initials weren't on the desk. I changed my name to PTS, Phil, Philip Thomas Shields. I don't know why I chose the doubting disciple, but I decided to go with another disciple name. See, names have meaning. 
My dad was praying that the saints that came before me, that I would follow in their steps and follow the risen Savior. When we look back at Isaiah 9, what we find is that names have tremendous meaning. Titles have tremendous, tremendous meaning. Isaiah chooses to say that someone is coming and, and this birth is going to happen and it's going to change everything. It's going to bring hope. And look at the titles in verse 6. He is going to be a wonderful counselor. He's going to be a mighty God. He's going to be an everlasting father. He's going to be a prince of peace. Now here's what I want you to notice though. Notice that he is saying that this this birth is going to happen. Jesus is going to come, and he's going to carry those titles, and he's going to rule, and he's going to bring this rule of peace. But notice that he doesn't use a certain title. Nowhere there does he use the term king. Now, Jesus is king, but Isaiah is not using that term. It's because Isaiah is using terms that express great hope. That these are titles to bring peace to the darkness that invades our life. When we start thinking about the circumstances that we're living in, we don't necessarily want to say, well, I need a king in my life. What we say is, I need a wonderful counselor. You know, I need a a mighty God in the midst of, of this, and, and then we get to this term of everlasting father. Now, here's the deal. That term for us today can bring a lot of emotion. It can bring a lot of doubt. It can bring hope, but it can also bring disappointment. Because the reality is, is that whenever we see the term father here, we end up looking at it, and for some of us, we go, that is not a term that brings about joyous thoughts. We live in a broken world. And so for some of you, when you read Everlasting Father, you start to tighten up and and you have these emotions. And for that, I, I want you to know, I am so sorry that you've had that type of an experience. And I want to ask that you hang with me through this. For those of you that have had a great experience with a father, I want you to to look really well on those memories. But I want you all to see that the term father is one that has deep, deep meaning for what you are going through. It's actually a foundation for the hope that Jesus wants to bring to your life. So whatever reason, there's a lot of pain when our culture goes to fatherhood. So for you dads here this morning, I want you to know I'm not going to be railing against you. I want you to hear what our Heavenly Father is all about and start to pursue Him in a deeper way. But here's what's interesting. When we look at uh, fatherhood, There are studies that have been done, and a few years ago, there was one that um, showed that if the child becomes a believer, is the first one to become a believer in the family, there's a 3.5% chance that the rest of the family will become believers. 3.5%. Now, if the mother is the one, there's a 17% chance that everyone else in the family will become a believer. 
When you go to the Father, if the Father is the first one, there is a 93% chance that the rest of the family will follow in line. Fatherhood has an incredible, incredible opportunity to reveal Christ. Beyond just our faith, there's been studies from the 90s to today that show that our relationships with our dads can be the most shaping influences in our lives. I want you to see some statistics. There's national statistics that show that 71% of high school dropouts are from fatherless homes. 75% of teenagers in substance abuse centers are there from fatherless homes, okay? One of the studies that I, I saw claimed that almost every social ill faced by America's children is related to fatherlessness. Every social ill. And then there was this study in California that noted that 98% of its discipline issues were caused by emotionally damaged young boys whose common characteristic was father loss. Now here's the thing. <laughs> Moms, you play an incredibly powerful role. But dads, this is huge. For some reason, when we see that there is a term for everlasting father, it's because there is a role that Jesus is going to play, and he wants that displayed through his people and through you men. And so I want to look at the wounds of fatherhood this morning, okay? because all of us probably come from some of these. And then I want you to see what our everlasting father is all about. So the first wound that you're going to see is that we end up that there's times that there is the never good enough father, okay? The never good enough father. Some look back and uh, they can look at the patterns in their life and no matter what they did, dad never seemed to be proud of them. You know, never said good job and, and never, like, praised you uh, for anything you did. And when you grow up in that type of a household, when that is, like, over you, this is what tends to happen is that you grow up and you start to be this person that has to prove yourself to your dad first. And then after that, you have to prove yourself to every other person. So you become an adult. And in your workplace, you're constantly working to get the approval of other people. See, it's because you often lived wondering if you added up to the, to the thing that your dad had in his mind. To put it simple, if you've ever watched the show Friends, Monica Geller grew up in this home. Monica was always trying to figure out how to add up to, in her dad's eyes, how she could be this incredible person. But her brother was the poster child. But for her, she was constantly wanting to prove to her dad. Proving yourself is the constant ache of wondering, am I good enough? See, what that ends up doing is it ends up 
meaning that your relationships in your family is a works-based relationship. So you're constantly working to try to, to do things for your family, and then when you start looking at your spiritual life, you start thinking that you are going to be working harder and harder to prove yourself to God that you are worthy to be his child. See, those that grow up in this home, they, they have this happening, and, and then when, when you start looking at, well, I'm trying to work to please a perfect God, you then start going, I don't know if I can ever do that because I'm imperfect. This is a, uh, an awful, awful cycle. If you were to turn to Isaiah chapter 43, verse 4, what you end up reading there is that God ends up saying that his people are precious and they are honored in his sight. That he, he looks upon them and he loves them. Now he's saying this in Isaiah, God says this in the midst of a people who are full of rebellion, who are sinful. And God is saying to you that you are precious in my sight. He's an everlasting father who sees you as precious. Look at this verse in Zephaniah 3.17. It says this, The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. You see what, what Zephaniah is saying here about the everlasting father is that for those of you that have surrendered your life to Christ, that he takes great, great joy and delight in you. And for those of you that haven't yet, he is chasing after you to give you that delight that you are craving. See, what's interesting here is, I'm sorry to say this, my dad, who is actually sitting in the room this morning, my dad is awesome, but my dad has never rejoiced over me with singing, okay? It's probably a good thing. But that's exactly what God wants to do here. He wants to rejoice over you. And if you would read throughout the scriptures, what you end up finding is that God goes on and on and on where he knew you in the womb. He knew how many hairs are on your head or used to be on your head. He, he, we end up reading that he is with you in the good and the bad and that he is unable to ever forget about you. That is the everlasting father that Isaiah is writing about. So Isaiah is writing this, and for us this morning, if you grew up in a home where you were going, I was never good enough, you have an everlasting father who is saying, I rejoice over you with singing. He's a father that says, I love you, and I'm proud of The people of Israel didn't need to hear the term king. They needed to hear that they had an everlasting father who loved them. There's a second wound that we end up seeing, and it's called the ticking father. This is the dad that you never knew who was going to walk into the house. The circumstances of the day, what happened at work, or the negativity or just the plain sinfulness in his heart 
could change his emotions quickly, and he was a ticking time bomb, and he would walk in, and anger would come out. For some of you, you have been hurt verbally, emotionally, physically. For that, I am so sorry. That is not what was supposed to happen in your life. But due to those things and those actions, it makes us uh, makes it so that it's hard to trust people or to communicate with people. You lose trust easily. And kids that grow up in that type of an environment, what they end up trying to do is that they try to control everything. So that if dad walks in, they try to control the situation around them so that dad doesn't go off. You know what happens is kids eventually grow up. And this is where you can say, Kids become control freaks, trying to control every circumstance around uh, their, their life, and they try to, to hold on to that. And what ends up happening is those adults become people where trust and communication are pushed aside because if you can't trust your dad, who can you trust? In Psalm 103, verse 8, David writes, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in love. I want you to see those three words there, compassionate, gracious, and abounding. This is an everlasting father who doesn't move quickly to anger. The circumstances of the day don't faze him. He's ready to forgive at the moment of repentance, and he's full of compassion. What ends up happening is ticking dads tend to miss repentance and anger stays at the forefront. But our everlasting father, it's always present. In Luke 15, Jesus tells the story of the prodigal son. What you end up finding there is that there's a, it's actually um, this story for years and years it's been said, the prodigal son, that's the name of the parable. It actually shouldn't be called that. Because the story is about the father. The father is always standing at the door of the house, yearning for his rebellious son who took his side of the inheritance and went away and threw it away. He is yearning for his son to come home. And the moment he sees him, he breaks into a sprint to welcome him back. That is a father who is abounding in love. Now, here's the deal. God is a great father, and good fathers not only abound in love, but in that abundance of love, they hug, they kiss, they care, but they also discipline. Because discipline, when it's calm discipline, is for our good. And what we find is that God has to do that. But whenever we look at this, what we have to understand, and this is coming from someone who, uh, if I'm honest with you, I struggle with this aspect because there's times where I go, God, where are you? Have you forgotten me? Where are you? Why do I feel like you have cursed me in this situation? But it's in these moments that he is saying, I am compassionate and I'm gracious and I'm abounding in love and I'm wanting to give it to you so you can give it to others. And so Isaiah is writing this because he wants the people to know that 
They serve a God who is very slow to anger. The term here for father is to reveal that we have a God who is not a ticking time bomb. He's not a ticking time bomb of wrath, but he is a God who is abounding in love. And for those of you this morning that have had a different experience with your earthly father, I'm here to tell you that you have an everlasting father reigning who is ruling with justice and peace and wants to bring peace to your life and he wants to pour this abounding love out because the peace and contentment that your life craves can be found in the presence of an everlasting father. There's a third wound. The third wound is the closed book father. This is the dad who was incredibly consistent, okay? Incredibly consistent, probably rarely ever got mad. But he didn't know how to show emotion and affection. He was a closed book. He didn't really express things. And what's fascinating is that studies with with kids, what, what the studies have shown is that kids need to hear several things from dad, actually three things, and they're really important. The three things that kids need to hear is, I love you, I'm proud of you, and you're really good at blank. I love you, I'm proud of you, you're really good at this. So I, I know, I mean, my dad screwed up in naming me, but this is what I I can remember from my childhood. From my childhood to today, my dad hugs me and kisses me. And if you have an issue with that, you got a problem. I played basketball. My dad never missed a game until my college career. And whether it was a win or a loss or I was horrible in the game. I would hear, I love you. I'm proud of you. You were really good at this part. And I can think of those times when that would take place, and I can remember my friends. I can remember my friends who never shed a tear at anything. Or they just, they never had affection at all. And when I think of those friends and what was taking place, and I can look back and look at their family, then I can realize why they were that way. It's because they never saw their dad that way. So when this takes place, they they weren't really, um, they weren't emotionally healthy. They weren't affectionately healthy. They were a closed book. Jesus tells us in the parable of the prodigal son that the father doesn't seem to be happy when his son is away. In fact, you know, he's standing at the door and he's looking out. And what we realize is that this father was, he was hurting because his son was wandering and struggling. And he, he was just, he was just standing there wondering where is his son And his son decides to journey home, and it says that the the father saw him in the distance. In fact, the the way the verse is, is written, it says, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him 
and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. I want you to see something. Look at the phrase, his father saw him. It means his eyes were always looking in the distance for this rebellious child to come back. And this is the moment when you should see that the dad is standing there and he's saying, I told you you shouldn't have lived that way. What makes you think you should spend the money that way? That's what you expect. And yet this father runs and in the abundance of love wraps his arms around him and kisses him. What's fascinating with this uh, parable is that John Piper talks about it and he ends up pointing out that with almost every other parable that Jesus tells, at the end of the parable, Jesus ends up saying, you're using a phrase, go and do likewise, or go and do this. And so there's this action step that takes place. But with this parable of the prodigal son, Jesus gives no action. In fact, at the end of the parable, it just goes to the next chapter. Jesus doesn't even say, go and do this or anything. Why? It's because what we end up seeing is that the emotion that we see in the father in that parable is emotionally connected to the everlasting father who expresses his love for us. So wherever you're at, if you never got the affection and the emotion, I want you to know that that parable is for you it's to tell you that you have a father that is, is so ready to run to you and to wrap his arms around you and keep you close because he wants to pour out his love for you. In every circumstance, in every simple action that you might have, that is your everlasting father. And then there's a fourth wound. The fourth one is this, it's the absent father. I'm a sports nut. I, uh, I love watching sports. I love watching interviews and seeing the stories of athletes. And, and what you end up seeing today is that when an interview is taking place, athletes will usually finish and they'll say, hi, mom, right? It's all about their mom. And, what, and I don't want to make a blanket statement. This isn't every athlete. But what we find is that 40% of American children live in homes without a dad. Maybe that was you. It's not supposed to be that way. Here's the thing. Kids are brilliant. Kids are always investigating and interpreting their surroundings. And so when they see that dad is absent, they often turn to that being a personal rejection on them. And they end up seeing themselves as not important or not good enough. The impact of absent fathers actually turns kids into eventually becoming adults that have anger issues, have depression, and they struggle with relationships. Boys show this in ways of being really aggressive and, and rebel. They want to conquer in sports or sexually and they, they go about this in a variety of ways. Girls tend to look at this and they look for that loving and comforting attention that they wanted from dad. 
and they go elsewhere and they try to find it in the attention from other uh, boys or girls. See, presence is vitally important. Let me, let me just say this as a pastor saying this to you. This week, I don't want you to feel the pressure, dads, to do some incredible family devotion. I want you to be present. Laugh, play a game. Just have a great time goofing around. You have dumb dad jokes, use them. Be present. In Hebrews 13.5, it says this, I will never leave you or forsake you. That word never, do you know what the definition of never is in the Greek? It's this, it means never, ever, 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 ever. And oh yeah, ever. Will the everlasting Father ever leave you? That's what that means. He's not going to be absent. And I know that there are times that you feel like he is absent, but in the midst of darkness, and and sometimes uh, in the midst of darkness, when you feel like he is not there, it's not true. It's the lie of Satan wanting you to believe that. I know it's hard to fathom it. I have felt that often. But David says in the Psalms, that he, he, even if we make our bed in hell, Jesus isn't absent from us. Believe me, we are sinners. We are making our bed in hell. And yet, Jesus runs after us. See, here's the thing. The peace and contentment that your life craves can be found in the presence of an everlasting Father. So why do we look at these fatherhood wounds through this lens this morning? It's so that we, including myself, are reminded or that we see for the first time that Jesus came to be an everlasting father who is always present and that he is the one that you are actually craving. It's not some human. You are craving him whether your dad was amazing or whether your dad was bad, no matter where it's at, there's always disappointment, but the everlasting father does not disappoint. Here's the reality. If, you're, if you had a good experience or a bad experience, all dads die. But the everlasting father doesn't. He's always present. He's always moving. He's always trying to come and to to be with us. And so Isaiah is saying in a time of total darkness that this everlasting father, the reason it's everlasting is because this father was present before time began. He's the span of time and he's all eternity. He is always there. And so that is the father we crave. Pastor J.D. Greer, in looking at Isaiah 9, ends up giving this just great statement. He says, don't judge your heavenly father by your earthly one. Evaluate your earthly father by your heavenly one. So when Isaiah is announcing the birth of Jesus, 
It's a beautiful thing. And what's amazing is that the first two titles that we've looked at the previous weeks, they reveal the qualities that, that bring about the preservation and the, the liberation for his people. But the second two qualities, everlasting father, prince of peace, those describe the conditions that will come because of him. The conditions of peace and contentment. And so for you this morning, for me this morning, I want to remind you that your everlasting father is standing at the doorway. And he's ready to sprint. He's ready to look ridiculous, to wrap his arms around you, to comfort you, and to do it in a completely better way than any human father could do. And so the question is, is how do you see Jesus this Advent? How are you seeing him? And will you take time to experience that abounding love that he provides? Let's pray. Father, I am so impacted by this text. I have been convicted by it and uh, troubled by it because I can't believe that you are the type of dad who loves in so many ways, never makes a mistake. And I pray that you would help me remember that. I pray that for my friends here and that we would be a people that worship you and you alone because of how gracious and generous you are. For those of us that are hurting from some wounds from our past, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to, in some ways, stop craving the broken idea of fatherhood and embrace the one of you. And I pray for my hurting friends here. Wherever they're at, I pray that you would bring the peace that you promise in Isaiah 9. And so we give you that. We lay this at your feet. May you be glorified in all we say and do because we are wrapped in your arms. And it's in your name I pray. Amen.